Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. It is a pleasure to be here today, and I enjoy this opportunity. Uh, Pastor Mark has had a great stretch of over a year of preaching consecutively, uh, and he's breaking that today, so thank you for this opportunity. Uh, I'm, I am. I'm very excited to be here. This passage that we're looking at, John chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, uh, was a passage that I'd planned a while ago to preach today. Uh, and as the order of worship came out and I saw that, oh, that we're looking at two passages, Numbers 21 and, and John 3, 14 and 15, there's this, it's in the service, that the whole service is really kind of gearing up towards this. Even our confession and assurance, uh, you'll hear in the sermon this morning, it's as if this was planned, and it was, but not, not by me and not by Pastor Mark and I. This is the providence of God. So it is um, amazing to be here, and then just to add to that, the women are studying this. So uh, quite the opportunity. Uh, let's go to the Lord's Word. We'll read John chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that you are our God and that you are here with us and you call us into your presence. Lord, what a beautiful thing it is to worship you together as a family. Lord, we ask that you would open your word to us now, that we would hear, that we would see. Lord, that we would honor and glorify Christ. Lord, we just thank you for him in his name. Amen. As we approach John chapter 3, uh, I mean, we stand in the shadow of the mountain that is John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he sent his only son, that whoever believes in him might not perish but have eternal life. It's a beautiful passage. In a lot of ways, you can see in all of Christianity, all that we believe, wrapped up kind of in a nutshell in John 3.16. It's a beautiful passage that speaks of the love of God. It's a passage that many Sunday school students know. It's, it's one of the most famous verses in our culture. I mean, you'll, you'll hear it in country music songs. They'll quote John 3.16, or you'll see it in players' eye black. Uh, John 3.16, or when we used to go to sporting events, you'd see posters with John 3.16. And it is a beautiful passage, but sometimes, sometimes when we come up to passages or verses like this, we tend to skim over what's in front of it. I know that's true of me. So what I'd like to do today is, is, is look at these two verses and see this comparison that Jesus is giving us as he's bringing the Old Testament to life and showing us Christ in the Old Testament. Now, you'll remember that John chapter 3 uh, is, is this conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. Nicodemus being the Pharisee, uh, one of the rulers, religious rulers. And he comes to Jesus at night and he says, Rabbi, we know that you are of God, for no one could do these signs unless you were sent by God. He's coming to encourage Jesus. Or at least that's what it looks like. But Jesus isn't interested in small talk. He jumps right into spiritual matters and says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, 
he cannot see the kingdom of God. I said, Jesus isn't one for small talk. Nicodemus is confused and doesn't know. What what do you mean? How am I supposed to go into my mother's womb a second time? And the, the, the next verses are this back and forth between Jesus and Nicodemus as he's explaining the new birth to Nicodemus. We end and we see that Jesus is saying, are you a teacher of Israel? And yet you don't understand these things. Nicodemus was confused. So Jesus provides him with with an example. He provides him with a parallel in the Old Testament. So the sermon will be broken up into basically two parts. We'll, We'll look at Moses raising up the serpent in the wilderness and what that meant to the people of Israel. And then we're going to compare that to the Son of Man being lifted up. Under each category, we'll see sort of four things. We'll see death, we'll see problem, we'll see a death, we'll see a curse, and we'll see salvation. So let's look at the first part of our comparison, Moses lifting up the serpent in the wilderness. Now, this would have been a very familiar event to Nicodemus, but we'll review it. So you can turn back in your Bibles, or you can flip the page in your order of worship and see we have numbers. Chapter 21, verses 4 through 9. Now, as we're getting there, and it may not take us very long because of the providence of God, um, we want to understand what's the context? What, what's going on in Israel at this time? We'll see that it's Moses leading the people of Israel, the, the Israelites in the wilderness. We know that Moses was the one that God sent to Egypt to bring them out of the land of slavery and out towards the promised land. He led them across the Red Sea miraculously. He brought them to Mount Sinai and gave them the law. We see the golden calf. We see them wandering through the desert without food, without water, without meat. And the people grumble and complain against the Lord along the way. And the Lord providentially, supernaturally provides for them through manna, through water gushing out of a rock, through quail just being blown to the people of Israel. And yet we see this cycle of of people grumbling against the Lord and against Moses. Just before this passage, we see multiple rebellions taking place as the people look to usurp Moses and turn against God. And fitting this pattern, we read Numbers chapter 21, verses 1 or 4 through 9. From Mount Hor, they set out by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he will take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Make four observations. One, we see man's mortal problem. We see that the people grumble against God and against Moses. In verse 5, why have you brought us up out of the land of Egypt to die in the wilderness? 
where there is no food, no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Remember, they are being sustained by the bread coming from heaven of God at this point. Everything that they have has come supernaturally from God. And yet they complain and they grumble and they call this worthless. Not only are they unthankful, but they're, they're, they're rebellious against God. As we said earlier, we see that this isn't just a one-time thing. It's not like they woke up on the wrong side of the bed this day or just having a hard time, but this is something that's continual. We see that this is a symptom of a wicked, treasonous, rebellious heart against the Lord. So this problem leads to our second observation, that God's justice leads to death. The people received God's displeasure, His justice, his wrath in some ways. In verse 6, we hear the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people. And they bit people so that many people of Israel died. So we notice that God's justice in this passage led to death. That sin and rebellion are serious. They're not to be ignored. They're not to be swept under the rug. They must be dealt with. But notice that God does not just put people to death for their sin, but instead he sends a curse among the people through the snakes. I mean, what, what powerful imagery. If you think about this from a Jewish, like a, a Jewish biblical perspective, I mean, this is really dramatic what's happening here. What can be more symbolic of the curse of God than a plague of poisonous serpents that bite and kill people? Think about it. From this perspective, I mean, the serpent is, is literally the cursed beast. Back in Genesis chapter 3, three we remember that, that Adam and Eve were in the garden. And Satan came as a serpent to tempt them. And he tempted Eve to disobey and eat the fruit. And as God came, he, we see the curses of God. We hear the curse against the serpent in chapter 3 of Genesis. There's a cosmic dimension that's portrayed in the physical world. Genesis chapter 3. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. And on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between the wo- you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. You see the serpent come up other places in Scripture as well. You, you see it uh, in Psalms, in Job, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and other prophets. In, in the picture we get, the words that we get describing a serpent are, are as follows. We hear that it's a crafty, hissing, biting, slithering, twisting, turning, coiling beast of destruction. That's how the Bible paints the serpent. You can see the curse of the garden lived out in the physical world as snakes are seen as things that you need to crush their head or you need to cut off its head, crush it, pierce its body with spears and arrows. The Bible has very harsh judgment towards serpents. And I don't think that our view of serpents is that much different today. Unless you're a small boy and like to chase gardener snakes or you work with snakes, most People don't care for snakes that much. I mean, if you think about it, if someone calls you a snake or they call you a serpent, it's probably not a compliment, right? Um, We also 
I mean, what's more terrifying than being stuck in a tight space with a poisonous snake? I mean, you may think of Indiana Jones in the pit uh, in Raiders of the Lost Ark and the nightmare that it would be to be surrounded by poisonous snakes that are looking to bite you and kill you. We, in our society, we have movies and TV shows. I think there's one that's dedicated to the idea of being stuck on a plane with snakes. Uh, And the title fits, Snakes on a Plane. Now, we tend to not like snakes. And I was able to experience this firsthand when I was in Kansas and working on a farm in Kansas. There were different kinds of snakes around. There was a bull snake and the gardener snake. But the one that we were always looking for was the rattlesnake. Uh, They were very prevalent. We had to be very careful as we walked out to the machinery, out to the tractor, out to uh, whatever it was that we were going out to. Uh, these snakes, there, there wasn't a lot there. It was a pretty desolate area, but these snakes would blend in with the ground, and you wouldn't see it. And there was a lot of loud noises, and so you wouldn't always hear it either. So you had to be really careful. Uh, and I remember on a few occasions coming up to a rattlesnake and, and not hearing it, but you would hear that, that rattle go off. And you would have, I, I had two very distinct emotions that ran through me. At first, it was that flight response. Got to get away from that snake. That snake could kill me. It's dangerous. I need to get away. But there was a second emotion, a deeper emotion, this this primal rage that this snake could kill me. And if I wasn't careful, it, it could get me now. But if I leave that snake where it is and it strikes me next time, that's on me. If I leave that snake where it is and it bites one of my friends or one of my friend's children, That's on me. I know that snake is there and I know that it's deadly and it needs to go. And working with the farmers in Kansas, uh, I mean, the the reaction was clear. That snake needs to die. And so people would get guns and they would shoot these snakes. If you were in a truck, you would run it over with the truck. If you had a shovel, you would use it as a weapon to kill that snake. If you had rocks, you had to crush it. This snake needed to go. This snake is deadly. And it's either him or it's me. Now, what if, like the Israelites, it wasn't one snake out in a field that was warning you of its presence, but snakes that came as a plague sent by God as judgment? And how terrifying would that be to be amongst however many snakes and they're looking to bite and you're simply waiting for your your turn, waiting to feel the sting of death as it bites your leg or your foot and injects that venom into you. This is pretty dramatic stuff. Now, what the Israelites had here, they had earned for themselves, this curse of God. But the truly amazing thing was that God did not simply discipline the Israelites for their disobedience, but he provided a means of saving them through trusting in him. See, they repented and they called out to God and they said, take these snakes away from us, save us. And he responded in grace, but not on their terms. He responded on his. See, they asked God to remove the snakes, to eradicate the snakes. But God had had a different idea. You see, God took the curse of the serpent and used it to become the cure. 
God said to Moses in verse 8, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole, and if the serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. So here we have Moses casting this, this fiery snake, this snake as it is biting people and they know what it looks like. He's casting that in metal and setting it on a post and setting it up in the middle of camp so that anyone can look over towards that post and see that snake lifted high in the air in the middle of camp. Notice that God did not take that snake away, but instead provided a means through the public display of the curse for the people of Israel to be revived if they looked on him and trusted. So we see that salvation is applied through faith. So to visualize the situation, suppose you're bitten by a snake. God didn't command you to stop and suck out the poison. He didn't give you the antidote to take this medicine to heal yourself. He didn't say rush to the hospital. He said stop, turn, look at my snake. Look at the post in the middle of camp and be saved. So when you trusted God's provision through the snake, you were supernaturally healed. That though the venom was yours and it was coursing through your veins, and if you let it run its course, it would kill you. Instead, you looked at that snake. And when you looked at that snake in faith, the venom would disappear. All the people had to do was simply look at the snake and trust God's provision. But notice how the curse becomes the cure. See, notice that Jesus compares himself in our passage To the cursed serpent. That's shocking. Shocking that the Son of God would compare Himself to the serpent. Why? Why does He do this? Why is the serpent the animal that Jesus is comparing Himself to here? Well, we see that on the cross, Jesus was cursed. In Deuteronomy 21, we we hear that if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain on the tree all night, but you shall bury him the same day. For a hanged man is cursed by God. See, the apostles were quick to relate this to Jesus. Peter, speaking to the the Pharisees in Acts, says, The God of our Father raised Jesus, whom you killed, by hanging him on a tree. That on the cross, Jesus was cursed. Well, we see more. We see that on the cross, Jesus endured the curse. In Isaiah chapter 53, speaking of Jesus, the prophet says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Remember the language, the biblical language about people with a serpent and how they long to crush its head and chop off its head, to pierce it, crush it with rocks. Here we see Jesus with very, very visual, uh, graphic language saying that he's stricken, smitten, Afflicted, wounded, pierced, and crushed. We know that the whole undiluted wrath of God 
came down upon Jesus as He was on the cross. Why? Well, because we see that on the cross, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came to this world and became the curse for us. Galatians 3, which again you'll find in your order of worship, says that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Or as Paul says it in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake He made Him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus Christ on the cross took our sin upon Himself. It was all placed upon Him. And He endured the wrath of God that we deserve. So we see that just as God used the cursed serpent to provide the remedy through public display, we see God used the curse of the cross of Christ to provide salvation to his people. Finally, we see that this is applied through faith. See, notice the verbs. What were the people to do in numbers when they were bitten by a snake? They were to look and live. Here in John, Jesus promises eternal life to anyone who believe in him. It's clear Jesus has done the work. Jesus has done the heavy lifting. Jesus has paid for the sins of his people and offers salvation and eternal life to anyone who would look and live, who would put their faith in Christ and live. See, when he died on the cross, he exclaimed, it is finished. He did everything required for us to gain eternal life. Look to Him for your salvation. God provided Christ as a Savior, lifting Him up as a curse on the cross and crushing Him for our sake. But notice that that not only was Christ crushed here, but we see the fulfillment that was going to happen that God promised in Genesis 3, that as Christ was crushed on the cross, It was really the heel that was being struck by the serpent. And the crushing death blow was done to sin, to death, to the serpent, to Satan, that God's people might be free. As John Owen titled his book, we see the death of death in the death of Christ. Why? Why did God do this? Why would the Son come? Why would the Father send the Son? For God so loved the world. That he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. That there is a great love of God that's poured out upon his people through Jesus Christ. That as God's people, we are loved more than we can imagine. That he sent his only son to be punished in our place, that we may enjoy eternal life and not perish. That there is no sin too great that he wouldn't repay it. For he has already paid for it in his body on the cross. That there is great forgiveness. We need not live with shame or guilt. Frustration for Jesus paid it all. Look to him and live. Believe and inherit eternal life. And remember your complete dependence upon the Lord. Don't let the cares and concerns of this world turn your attention away from our Savior. Just as the Israelites in the wilderness turned their attention away from God and they grumbled against Him despite all the blessings that He had provided for them. I think it was true of us. It can be true of us. 
as Moses reflected on the serpents in the wilderness, at the end of his life, we come to Deuteronomy, and the people are ready to enter the land. The time has been fulfilled, and they're ready to go. They're ready to go into the promised land that God has given them. And Moses isn't going with them. He spent this entire time with them, led them, um, mediated for them. He was their leader, leading them to the promised land. But as he sits back and reflects, we see in Deuteronomy that he reminds them not to grow self-sufficient. I think we can use the same reminder. In Deuteronomy 8, 11 through 18, we hear, Take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today, lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your hands and your flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied, and all that you have is multiplied, then your hearts will be lifted up and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you out water from the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna, and your fathers did not know that he might humble you and test you to do good to you in the end. Beware lest you say in your heart, my power and might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is to this day. People of God, take care lest you forget the Lord your God. Turn to him and repent of your sins daily. Respond to him in faith. And always remember the all-sufficient work of our Savior. Look upon Him who became a curse for our sake and live. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.